If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An Elio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Jessica Levy. Dr. Levy is a historian of capitalism, racism, and politics. She's an assistant professor of history at SUNY Purchase and the host of Who Makes Sense, a history of capitalism podcast. Let's hear what she has to say about capitalism. Dr. Levy, hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So, on our podcast, we we look at history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. And quite often, we find ourselves blaming capitalism. <laughs> so whether you know it's 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 corporations or or lack of regulation or, or companies cutting corners and you know profits over people. Uh, and, and in this episode, we were trying to figure out who's to blame for capitalism itself, and 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 we're focusing specifically on America's late stage capital capitalism. So for starters. Can you give us a brief overview of how we got to where we are and what came before capitalism? Essentially, how did people get by? Yeah, um, well, these are great questions. And um, I'm not surprised to hear that you find yourself blaming capitalism and capitalists uh, for various misdeeds uh, in history. Uh, in terms of, you know, how we got here, I mean, this is really uh, a, a central question that has animated the, the whole field of the history of capitalism, which is a field of, of study, trying to understand, you know, how did capitalism um, come to be? And this, you know, goes back uh, many, many decades, including, you know, all the way to, to Adam Smith, who I know we'll, we'll probably talk about. Um, and I think, you know, people might be surprised to hear both how much we still don't know and how much um, debate there still is in terms of how capitalism came to be and, and how we got here. 
Uh, I think, you know, there's a very kind of classic story that centers on the transition from feudalism. So, you know, in response to your question of, of what came before, right, um, kind of we, we tend to talk about kind of feudal societies um, in medieval Europe, um, various, you know, focused on, on serfs and uh, lords. Um, but, you know, in many ways, this is a very kind of Eurocentric story. Um, that is to say that Prior to, you know, what we call today capitalism, um, around the world, we find people living, laboring, surviving under a wide range of different systems and in various, uh, you know, involved in various forms of both short and um, long range trade. So, you know, we can find quite developed, um, you know, trading systems around the world. And I think it's important to to make that sort of clear. Um what many people kind of look to to mark the the kind of birth of capitalism is something we call the great divergence and and this is kind of the moment when we see a dramatic increase in productivity um, uh, in uh, particularly in in England uh, but also the Netherlands and other um, countries that enabled them to escape earlier constraints uh, to growth um, and give rise to kind of what we know today as, as capitalism. Um, and, and, you know, scholars and, and uh, historians continue to debate the causes of the Great Divergence. We can kind of chart this rise in productivity, this um, rise in, in income that enabled people to move beyond subsistence uh, economies. Um, and people look to various things from political institutions to culture to religion. Um, some might um, uh, be familiar with the notion of a kind of Protestant work ethic, as has you know long been thought to be a contributing factor to this great divergence, uh, the environment. Um, but you know, recent scholarship has has really noted that in many ways, all the way up to 1800, right? So so quite late, um, England, which is kind of the often thought of as the, the forefront of, of the development of modern capitalism, um, was actually quite comparable to some other areas of the world, most notably China. Uh, so England and China were basically similar in many significant economic indices, including standard of living, market development, uh, agrarian productivity, um, institutional structures that affected uh, growth. And both um, noticeably had access to coal, which is a, a really key ingredient in the Industrial Revolution and the rise of, of capitalism. Um, but this is where history and kind of contingency come into play. Um, so in England, you know, this is just one example kind of of the various factors that give rise to capitalism. In England, um, Due to, you know, a kind of pure accident of geography, England's coal supplies were closer to water, closer to ports, um, making it more feasible for, um, uh, you know, coal to be transported to the ports and give rise to the steam engine, which is a really key, you know, in, in part of that industrial revolution and the rise of, of capitalism compared to China, whose main coal deposits were in the far northwest far from its textile manufacturing. Um, and also noticeably uh, coal in, in China is, is in a drier climate, which made it more prone to explosion, uh, which means that, you know, people in China had disincentives or not a lot of incentives to kind of, you know, experiment with coal and figure out, you know, how to, how to uh, get it to, you know, to, to develop the steam engine. So this is just kind of some of the kind of little 
you know, what we we like to call contingencies or the kind of you know coincidences of history um, that that gave rise to capitalism. Um, another, which I, I think we'll talk about right here, is I think it's impossible to really separate the rise of capitalism from the rise of European imperialism and um, and slavery. Um, but I think we'll we'll uh, touch on that shortly. Yes. Yeah, so by the time uh, 18th century economist Adam Smith uh, writes Wealth of Nations, how how had things changed and what was Smith's philosophy? Yeah. So I think it's, you know, important to kind of uh, note that Smith did not invent capitalism, yes. um, you know, and he didn't even actually use the word. Uh, he, he used the term commercial society. Um, but yeah, Smith, um, you know, in The Wealth of Nations and in his other works is um, really trying to make sense of changes that are already going on, um, you know, in that he's observing around them. Um, particularly, he's writing in the context of the Scottish Agricultural Revolution, um, which saw um, kind of as a long going process that began in the 17th century and continued to the 19th um, that transformed Scottish agriculture from one of the least modernized systems to what would become one of the most modern and productive systems um, in Europe. And so Smith's, you know, observing these transformations going on and trying to make um, sense of them. He's in conversation with other economic thinkers at the time, including um, uh, Nicholas Magins. Um, and, you know, his accounts of things like the division of labor um, and free trade, um, uh, you know, self-interest in exchange, the limits on government intervention, um, et cetera, are, are crucial to the development of the field of economics, right, which is devoted to, to making sense of these changes. Um, on the other hand, um, The Wealth of Nations is not actually a book on economics, uh, which is, I think is something that we here in the 21st century struggle with. Um, uh, economics as a discipline didn't really exist at the time. Um, uh, Adam Smith was rather, you know, what we like to call a political economist or a philosopher. Um, he was really, you know, he was interested in much more than um, the market. Um, and, and particularly, he was very concerned with human morality and social relations. And so, you know, he many of his ideas were um, thinking about, you know, how to improve uh, human interactions and human sociability, our ability to get along. Um, what makes Smith's work so, I think, you know, revolutionary at the time is its rejection of mercantilism, which is kind of the the dominant form of economic policy and thinking, um, which held that wealth was fixed and finite. And, and basically, the only way for nations to prosper was to hoard gold um, or silver, right, other forms of, of, of um, wealth, and to place tariffs um, or, you know, uh, restrictions on products from abroad, um, right, that, that nations, um, in order to, to grow their wealth, uh, should sell as many goods, should export to other countries while buying uh, little to nothing in uh, return. And, and we can kind of see how this system would incentivize various countries to basically, you know, increase their tariffs uh, to try to, you know, prevent in, in other countries from flooding them with imports. Um, and this chokes off international trade. So in other words, you know, international trade between countries is actually bad under mercantilism. In contrast to mercantilism, which viewed wealth as a resource contained within the nation, right, there's a kind of finite amount of wealth that the nation has, and we must hoard this and protect it and try to accumulate more without giving any away. 
Smith actually argued that wealth is derived from labor. Um, and this is a really key insight and one that Smith actually notably shares with another major theorist of capitalism, Karl Marx, uh, who will come a little bit later um, and build on Smith's ideas, um, although take them in a little bit of a different direction. Um, and, and, you know, Smith, basically, the idea was that the one, the more one labors, the more one earns. Um, and and this actually is a social good that that through laboring um, it supplies individuals and the community. This is you know going back to kind of Smith as a moral philosopher um, with um, you know basic needs and um, and potentially a little bit left over, kind of wealth left over that can be reinvested. And that's actually what distinguishes wealth from capital. Capital is this is is money is is wealth left over that can actually be reinvested and increase productivity even more. Um, and and so you know as part of this, um, uh, Smith also writes saw a positive good to free trade rather than diminishing um, wealth, rather than right getting rid of this finite resource, uh, which Smith didn't see as finite, free trade increases it because it provides more occasion for labor um, and therefore more occasion to create more wealth. So, you know, for example, I think, you know, one, one classic example he uses is wine. Um, a kind of mercantilist view would say, you know, in, in the UK, right, Scotland should, should produce all the wine uh, as possible. We should hoard our wine. Um, and Smith is like, well, you know, no, Scotland actually doesn't produce very good wine. We can get better wine from France. Um, why don't we focus on producing the things we're really good at, like say wool from sheep, and we'll produce more of that. France will produce more of wine, and we'll trade, and we'll actually get more of both, and both societies uh, will prosper. So, so there's this idea that um, you know uh, that trade is really good, um, right? And um, and that the division of labor um, is is something that um, Smith is observing. And will actually result in in more productivity and more interdependence. Um, and this is, I think, really key. That there's this kind of interesting um, way in which you know our own self interest to to kind of um, uh, our, our 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 own desire to meet our individual needs to fulfill our self interests interests um, through production, through sort of making particular goods, specializing in you know, whatever it is we specialize in um, actually is is not just about, you know, even if that's self-interested will actually result in a societal benefit um, by bringing us closer together. If I, you know, specialize in uh, producing wine and you specialize in producing, uh, you know, cotton, that eventually will have, this will actually lead to closer trade relationships um, and lead to mutual prosperity um, and interdependence. Um, now this is a really dumb question, but what you, <laughs> no, <laughs> what no you are yeah. talking about is that what people refer to as a free market? Mm, yeah, <laughs> or, or so. at least what is a free market as we know it now? That's a good question. I think you know. I think the idea of free markets, right, in terms of Smith, comes from Smith's view of of kind of laissez-faire that the government should have a minimal interference in these activities, that what's actually guiding these mm. um, this division of labor and the development of the economy in Smith is this idea of the kind of invisible hand, um, which, uh, which, you know, naturally, as, as the economy grows, um, we, you know, become various, you know, specialized, we develop these, you know, uh, trade relations. Um, and right for Smith, remember, he's writing in a time of, of mercantilism, where 
governments are are raising barriers to trade, right? And he sees trade as a good thing. And so for a free market for Smith meant, right, that government shouldn't be preventing um, mm. that those kinds of, of interactions. Um, now, I think in terms of how we understand free markets and Smith's idea of laissez, there's there's been a bit of a, a of a kind of I think misunderstanding of Smith. Um, you know, Smith did see a role of government. Um, he you know a thought the government should protect national borders, should enforce civil law. Um, they also uh, you know should engage in public works, so things like education. Um, you know, possibly, you know, healthcare. although, you know, uh, I, I think it's really hard, you know, for people to remember that Smith is operating at a time, you know, the idea of government as we know it today was just, you know, impossible for him to conceive. And so, you know, Smith was not, you know, in some, I think Smith's ideas have been really taken up um, by various, you know, various kind of political uh, movements. Um, but, you know, he, he was not a libertarian. He was not somebody who believed that government should not exist. Um, and I think sometimes when we use the term free market uh, today, um, it can uh, imply that, uh, you know, government yeah, should, should not exist at all or should be very, 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 you know, minimal. Um, and remember, right, Smith was ultimately really invested in, you know, the social social good and sort of um, uh, and and human sort of uh, prosperity, uh, you know, how how humans could flourish uh, together, um, you know, more so than kind of being anti-government. Um, right. He was anti-tariffs and he was anti-government regulation um, of trade. Um, but um, but he was very interested in human interdependence. Um, not sort of this idea of, you know, uh, individuals making it, you know, on their own. That would actually, I think, be quite uh, horrific to Smith. So how did slavery and the expro- uh, expropriation of land affect America's development? Would would we have the system we have today without this tragic exploitation? Uh, the short answer, uh, no. <laughs> I yeah. think, you know, um, and this is something I think recent uh, scholarship and recent kind of research on this has really um, contributed a lot to thinking about how slavery and the expropriation of Native American lands um, hugely were, were fundamentally crucial, particularly to the development of American um, capitalism. So I do not think that we'd have the American capitalist uh, system that we have today as we know it um, without slavery or the um, expropriation of Native American land. And, and that's for a few reasons, right? I think we we tend to kind of think of slavery as a system of right cheap labor or, you know, and it, it wasn't free labor, right? There is some cost um, to um to, you know, to slavery, to provisioning uh, for enslaved people, to, you know, maintaining, um, uh, to yeah, purchase the purchasing of enslaved uh, people. Um, but it's minimal, right? Um, uh, but, you know, so so on one hand, right, the the kind of the capital, the you know, the accumulation of capital itself that will give rise to American capitalism um, really did come from uh, that, uh, you know, plantation agricultural system. And there have been um, some really uh, remarkable kind of studies just to show, right, um, that, you know, the U.S., um, during the 19th century, during the early part of the 19th century, when slavery and plantation um, slavery in particular were at its height, was um, the number one supplier of one of the most important goods um, 
in the Industrial Revolution, in the rise of capitalism, which was cotton. Um, cotton uh, was referred to almost as, as the kind of white gold. Um, it's what, you know, helped to power the textile manufacturing, the factories that, you know, gave rise to industrialization in the UK and in New England. And, and that cotton right was, was picked and was grown by enslaved uh, labor, which was also an incredibly um, efficient and effective form of, of labor, right? Slavery uh, through torture and, um, you know, exploitation um, picked uh, large amounts of cotton. And when slavery ended, uh, we see uh, sort of declines um, in that productivity. But it's not just the labor aspect of, of slavery here. It's also enslaved people um, serving as capital themselves. Um, and we can see, you know, how, um, and this is, I think, really important to thinking about how slavery was crucial to American capitalism and not just the development of the Southern economy. Um, many financial institutions, many non-financial institutions um, invested, right, their assets, thinking about how how the, the kind of accumulation of wealth occurred for, you know, a significant portion of this country's history um, occurred through owning um, and um, and investing in enslaved people as capital. Um, and that's really, um, really, really crucial. Um, in terms of right the, where you know the expropriation of land here comes in, right those that system of plantation economy um, would not have existed right uh, uh, without without land. Um, just to kind of you know you know and, and to think about the the crucial role that um, land plays, um, the kind of land that was freed up through uh, wars, you know, Native American wars and through kind of, you know, basically uh, tricking and stealing uh, uh, land from Native Americans, um, uh, the, you know, gave, you know, allowed us to produce all of these agricultural goods, sugar, timber, and cotton that if they had been grown in Europe would have used 10 to 15 million acres of land or basically two thirds of England's totable arable land. So the, you know, um, the value that slavery brings, right, the, the that labor value enslaved people are valued for for their labor to, you know, grow these goods um, would not have existed if the land itself to grow these goods um, was not uh, uh, available. Um, so, so I think, you know, Overall, um, you know, uh, and there are a number of different ways in which we can, you know, trace uh, the the you know various state budgets, uh, state finances were tied. You know, various many many different institutions and kinds of people profited from uh, the expropriation of Native American lands and from um, slavery. And so, I think there's been a real shift recently from seeing slavery as as kind of distinct from capitalism as a kind of free capitalist system um to really seeing it as uh as integral if not you know foundational to to the rise of american capitalism now we had a lot of listeners who were very quick to point their finger at alexander hamilton and i just want to get to the bottom of this <laughs> how how did how did Alexander Hamilton and his economic theories shape our country after our independence from Britain? What's his involvement here? Yeah, I find this uh, this this interest and in, and uh, in Alexander Hamilton very interest interesting, and I I'm curious how much it has to do with uh, with the musical that uh, came out, which did a great job, right, at drawing attention to uh, to this uh, relatively obscure uh, or previously relatively obscure American founding father. Um, 
I think, you know, Hamilton's contribution is really crucial, particularly in terms of thinking about American finance um, and um, and which is, you know, how American capitalism and how the U.S. government is is funded. And I actually want to think about how those two work together. Um, so I think, you know, the context of the Revolutionary War is really important. Uh, the Revolutionary War, like all wars, uh, was expensive, right? Somebody has to pay for the war, pay for those troops, pay for, you know, provisioning of, of pay for munitions. Um, and, and you know, the country as the United States didn't really exist yet, right? So, so how do you fund uh, the Revolutionary War? Well, so during the Revolution, you know, both the, the um, Continental Army and, and eventually, right, the national and state governments um, took on significant amounts of debt, uh, right? Debt made the Revolutionary War possible, uh, made our country's existence uh, possible. And following the Revolutionary War, there's a large debate about how and among some whether to repay those debts. Um, and I think it's really interesting in our our kind of contemporary conversations around um, indebtedness, um, and uh, which you know now I think culturally, right, the idea of not paying uh, one's debt is is think thought of as very fraught. But there were many Americans in the early uh, early years of our country's founding who who sought to just say, you know, no, we're not going to pay those debts. Uh, but but Hamilton really argued. Um, for that, that you know, he saw, he said, you know, we needed to repay the debts uh, of of the war, um, and um, particularly he argued right for the funding of of the national debt at the full level, um, and that the federal government would assume or take care of the debts that had been incurred by states during the revolution, um, and he you know argued for the development of right a system of taxation to pay for uh, those oh, those debts, and that's you know, really crucial to the country's, uh, you know, both the ability uh, for us to repay the war debt, but right, also our continued growth and existence, uh, right? How, you know, the basic forms of, of kind of functioning of a government from, uh, you know, the ability to fight wars, but also just, you know, develop a, a, a government office. You need sort of financing uh, to do that. Um, now, I think what's interesting here is that, you know, this was, is is both a political and an economic project for for Hamilton um right this was um he hoped that by um by by paying repaying the debt um that um he would you know basically encourage private individuals um and some of some of those were from Europe uh, France was a for example a a holder of some of the debt for um the revolutionary war but also wealthy individuals within the United States would bind them to to the nation right that that they would that would they would be tied then to the national uh government basically create a, a class of investors um, who would be incentivized to, you know, help further, you know, lend money to the U.S. again when, you know, say we have to fight another war um, or, you know, for various other forms of, of government um, functioning. And if you right, refuse to pay that debt, if you, you say, OK, we're not paying that debt, then who's going to lend you money the next time? Uh, you know, you need uh, you need sort of money. So he really saw this as as crucial, right, not just to kind of uh, on the economic lens of actually just repaying the debt, but politically giving the United States legitimacy um, that people would be willing to lend money in the future. Um, and that this was actually fundamental to, to the country's uh, existence uh, and, 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 and growth. Um, 
He also, right, and this, and they, we see these kind of ideas also in his advocacy for a national bank, um, which is modeled after the Bank of England, again, kind of trying to, um, to solidify this partnership between the government and business classes or private individuals um, who benefited from loaning money to the government and then getting repaid um, back and, and to kind of further strengthen um, this, this tie between business um, and, and government, particularly between financiers, investors, um, and, and the U.S. government. Um, he also, you know, going back to our conversations about Smith, though, he also, right, was, um, you know, thinking about how to, how to, uh, change the relationship with England, um, right? Part of the, the part of what caused the Revolutionary War um, was America's colonial relationship with Britain. Um, under the British imperial mercantilist system, America was a colony, right? And, and colonies job was to supply raw materials to metropole where, you know, cotton, uh, sugar, other forms of agricultural goods that would be then manufactured um, in, in England. And um, and this created a kind of dependent uh, dependency between America and, and Britain. And Hamilton really sought to break this cycle, to develop American industry, right? And, you know, part of this has to do with finance. You need finance to help invest in, in the growth of factories. Um, and so Hamilton was really influenced by Smith um, in, in seeing kind of the centrality of, of manufacturing. But he also opposed, you know, in some sense, Smith's ideas of, of laissez-faire or, or, you know, free trade. Um, that this idea that the state must stay out. And he actually said, look, if the state stays out, Britain's already, you know, industrialized enough, there's, they're just going to crush our, our industry. And so he advocated for certain protections, certain kind of tariffs to protect nascent, you know, uh, American uh, factories and industries um, so that they could develop, so that the U.S. could develop um, and actually compete with Britain, as opposed to just kind of perpetually being stuck in this uh, relationship of exporting, you know, agricultural or un unmanufactured, unrefined uh, goods. Um, now, you know, his ideas, particularly on, on right, on, on that, on, on uh, against free trade, were uh, criticized at the time, uh, particularly by many Southerners, uh, including some influential other American founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson, who saw agriculture as, as the key to American uh, development. Um, and so, right, he he was limited, actually, I think, in the time and his ability to implement some of those ideas. But um, but that idea, actually, of, of having some kind of government regulations to protect um, industries has actually become really central to the development of many developing countries. So we see this throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, all the way to the 1970s, as various countries try to make that, that jump from developing to developed, right? There's this sense of, well, we need certain protections for our industry to enable us to be less dependent on um, those already industrialized uh, nations. So I think his ideas have had a really lasting uh, influence, uh, particularly on this idea of kind of develop um, development economics, or how do you how do you develop as a nation? Now, we're, we're running out of time, but but we have to talk about the Industrial Revolution and its effect on capitalism. And I really want to uh, just kind of know where we are today as a modern day capitalistic society. Um, and, and just how we differ, how our American version of capitalism compares to other countries of similar economic size. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, thinking back to Hamilton, um, right, uh, Hamilton really foresaw the United States developing or hoped, right, that the United States would develop as an industrial nation and right, and not remain perpetually trapped um, in, in kind of um, agriculture. And, and certainly today, the United States is, I think, one of the most developed uh, industrial nations um, in uh, in the world. Um, in terms of, you know, there are various uh, measures of this in terms of size uh, or the largest economy based on gross domestic product, uh, which is the monetary value of goods and services produced by a particular country. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of thinking about uh, where we are today, um, I think it's also, you know, I like to think of the America, uh, American capitalism as capitalism on steroids, <laughs> um, right? And and so we've we've seen the the major benefits of that in terms of of gross domestic product in terms of uh you know we're within the top 10 countries in the world in terms of highest medium income um but capitalism as as um you know i think many listeners uh will be familiar with has also had many consequences including um uh inequality um and so uh you know we've also seen that income and wealth inequality in the united states is higher than in almost any other developed um, country and seems to, you know, be be getting worse. And I would say, you know, um, based on on, on history, right, uh, based on, on looking back at how, you know, not just the kind of theories of how capitalism but work, but works, but actually, you know, how it has historically developed, um, those two things have often gone hand in hand. Um, development, um, industrialization, um, uh, kind of the right, uh, the the development of capitalism um, and inequality. Um, now, it hasn't been a, a totally smooth ride, right? It's not a sort of linear. We can see particular moments, uh, the mid 20th century, for example, in U.S. history where um, we have a more managed form of capitalism, where some of those excesses, some of that inequality uh, was uh, was better contained through things like government regulation um, and protections for workers, uh, limits to, uh, for example, uh, capital gains, uh, how much you can uh, make off of investments. Uh, but uh, that kind of free market capitalism, I think that you are uh, gesturing to, that's uh, has been uh, you know the last fifty you know or so years uh, um, has has gone hand in hand with uh, growing inequality. It's we we spent a lot of time trying to understand what billionaires are in, on our <laughs> what billionaires are. Oh, I thought that would be pretty simple. There, you know. Um, I mean, I don't think people and we know we we tr we tried to do the math. I guess, mm -hmm. and and you know, we we were we were really stuck on 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 whether people actually understood how much money billionaires mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and and how that contributes to the inequality. But I, I think that led us down a very bleak mm. path. Um, and, 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 and we talked about, you know, here we talk about historical tragedy. So the fact that this was one of our bleakest episodes says a lot. Um, so as Americans here, uh, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? What can we do here? Um. I mean, I think as a historian, right, um, hey, I should say as a historian, we're, we're our usual cop out is we're not very good at predicting the future. Um, and then I also would say, you know, I don't know if there's an end of the tunnel um, in the sense that, you know, I I like to spend a lot, I focus less, I 
think than others on kind of the end of capitalism, which I think is, you know, some some people's light at the end of, of the title and is a pretty monumental task. Um, but I do think that there is light um, and that history um, can, you know, has examples of ways that Americans, uh, right, in this country have been better able to manage um, capitalism and some of the, I think, you know, negative uh, and bleak things that we associate it, um, you know, with. And and so here I want to, you know, caution against, against a certain kind of nostalgia for the New Deal that, um, let's be clear, uh, coincided and was implicated in the perpetuation of Jim Crow. I think that's uh, really important here. We don't want to go back to the 1940s and 50s as a country. But I think we can look to, you know, earlier periods of of time um, and particular policies and particular actions uh, uh, that have um, enabled us uh, to uh, have a uh, more equitable society um, where, you know, you know, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with billionaires if everybody's a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that, right, I think the idea of, of right, what you're suggesting of, of, you know, the idea of some people having just so, so much more than others, that's, that's really, I think, what we're getting at. Um, and so I think there are a lot, uh, a lot more than we have time to, you know, cover um, uh, uh, solutions and things we can think about to try to minimize those excesses, expanded protections for workers, rent control, uh, tax on on uh, capital uh, gains, taxes, you know, a more progressive uh, tax structure, right? So I, I think there are a lot of ideas that people are pursuing. Um, but, um, uh, and we can look to history to see how different groups of Americans, including the non-billionaires, um, have advocated and fought for those things in the past and, and implemented and won some of them. Aww. So we always ask our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the state of America's late stage capitalism who or what would that be? Man, this is <laughs> this is a big, big question, especially for this topic. Um, I think you know the easiest answer here, and one that people often say is capitalists, right? Capitalism requires uh, capitalists, those that are at the top of this system, who, uh, in, in Marx's definition, own the means of of production, right? Are not uh, uh, wage uh, laborers. Uh, but, you know, I think it's really in late stage American capitalism, one of the things that's really interesting and challenging is that in some ways, um, you know, I think late stage American capitalism has produced this um, more and it's becoming harder and harder to figure out who's a capitalist and who's not right in this culture of entrepreneurship and freelance and democratized investment platforms like Robinhood that, you know, allow us all to be capitalists and, and more and more Americans are literally invested in capitalism. So I, I do think, you know, we can't just um, I think we should, you know, focus on the billionaires and and, um, you know, those with the most wealth. But I think we also need to take a really deep dive into our own everybody's um, investment in this um, in this system um, of, of sort of capitalism um, and also I, I think I can't let off the hook um, 
racism, sexism, ableism, and other forms of power, um, right? In in con- contrast to Smith's kind of idea of a commercial society leading to greater interdependence and stability, I think, you know, the history of capitalism has really shown that capitalism um, and American capitalism in particular um, has relied on, right, um, and perpetuated these various forms of inequality. And, and I think, right, without these various forms of structural inequality without slavery, without racism, uh, without sexism, um, we'd see a very different kind of capitalism, if at all. And so I think um, those of us that are, are looking at who or what to blame, uh, we can't uh, ignore these um, uh, more ideological um, and uh, structural systems of, of power, because that's really what capitalism is. It's a system of power and, and control. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like we have just learned so much. (laughs) Thank you. It's a real pleasure. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With us today we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I've said this before, but I really mean it. I just want to be a student in our guest experts classes. Mm-hmm. I just want to where was this class when I went to school? Well, one of our classes is a podcast, so you could. Right, <laughs> we can. It's true. That's true. But this class would be like, you know, if you have to like rank your classes, if you can't like priority wise, I'm like, this is like number one. Yes. Because I was like, we could just go on for hours. Yeah. Just love so listening efficient. to all of it. Just, and, and yet you oh felt my. like there was so much more you wanted to know about these sort of historical moments. Oh, we just scratched the surface here. Yeah. 
We mm-hmm. barely mm-hmm. got into it. Now, I know you guys were taking so, uh, so many notes. Oh my God, I, I, I've got a page of notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few things just off the top of my head. Okay. Adam Smith, obviously misunderstood. Context. The big thing mm-hmm. I took away from it was context. Yeah. Right. His understanding right. of what government... Mm-hmm. And what everything was, it was was could only be based well, on what of was the going time, on at that of course. Time. Yeah, exactly. Like, so to so take it out smaller. of context is 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 dangerous. Honestly, right. you shouldn't. <laughs> don't and to be that. reminded that like he wasn't even using that term, and like his, you know, like economics was not like a thing at the time, or like at least it wasn't discussed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really fascinating. I mean, it really is, it felt like just talking about all of these things, it really, like the phrase of like, it takes a village. Like it really felt like it takes a village for us to get to where we are now with all the different people who've, yeah. all the different inputs, all the different ideas and theories that have like circulated. And then suddenly something takes off and here we are. Right. It does feel like you're just sort of thrust into this, into this space and you're just sort of like confused and there is a sort of sort of reality but as you look back you're like and you watch how it sort of morphed and formed over time Mm -hmm. you feel it just had there is this feeling of sort of a helplessness and sort of like a oof what who am i and where (laughs) what is happening right (laughs) grew into a really big machine and now we're like oh there's a lot of parts of this machine that we need to fix (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but let's let's remember the hopeful oh yeah side mm-hmm. or, or at sure. least the hope that Dr. Levy tried to impart. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean there us, are times when this you know. is when capitalism has functioned more successfully when there were like certain regulations in place yes. that did actually benefit the middle class and there was a more equal distribution of wealth like these are the things where it's like we can get back to that well but that's or, the thing mate perhaps we don't want to go back to to well that. you have to yes you have to tweak some of the things like what again, like she was context, saying was built on right <laughs> yes modernize it but, but i mean regulation you know like new laws like new tax codes, like all these yeah. things where it's like, yeah, there's things that we can do that, um, like totally. she said, get, uh, get us all closer to being billionaires. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. You know, there was a, a moment there where I was actually sort of, and I, I think we lose sight of this sometimes, but, you know, to sort of acknowledge the role of capitalism in creating the sort of comforts of modern society uh-huh. and sort of the development mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. our country, albeit born out of this these sort of ex, this exploitation and expropriation, et cetera, yeah. um, which are tragic historical uh, events, obviously. Oh, just to piggyback off of that, like what I think is interesting about her response at the end was like this idea of like how much are we all involved in capitalism yeah. and like kind of truly holding the mirror up to nature like it, it is this big thing and it's hard to see the difference between like you know who the capitalists are like who the owners are because we're all so invested in the system and it's much like and it's like just like we're all invested in this earth like if we're all invested there are ways that we can start to I think work together like truly like a more global or diverse interconnected yeah. mindset where it's like well how how can we do this for the benefit of all instead of just the benefit of me and mine right and yeah. instead of just like throwing or saying the whole system is trash and we have to build a whole new system like 
there are, like you were saying, Chris, there's a lot of good things that have come out of this. And like we talked about in our episode, people are corrupt and sometimes when they game the system, but like if we can find a balance of bringing those guys in Mm -hmm. and working together more, the system can be more perfect. Just like, you know, our democracy, we're always striving to have a more perfect democracy. Like nothing's ever going to be perfect, but how do we find the balance? It's a work in progress. It feels like, it feels like a key phrase is not putting people over profit. Yeah. Because if if you always have the 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 best intention for for community and those around us, then odds are you're probably going to make choices that are way more conscious. Yeah. And and it's and a, it's it's a fanciful thought. <laughs> I don't know, fa- but it's something that we can practice at least mm-hmm. in in our own in our own lives in our own. Dis- our own decisions. So Dr. Levy said, I mean, so much more she said, but uh, was she ultimately she blamed capitalists and racism, sexism, ableism. Essentially, right. Other, it's, it's yeah, like power. Power. Yeah. Yeah. Human are like our human nature, which she did. She did uh, say that phrase a couple of times, our human, our human nature, our human self, you know, our interests. And I felt like um, it was like kind of like, yay, when I heard her say <laughs> like we talked on that too. <laughs> so remind us, Clayton, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail? So we threw a bot government in the jail. <laughs> okay. Okay, I understand where we were going with that. Yes, and we gave a the big slap to human self interest. Right. Mm. We were we were debating around human nature. We kind of morphed that into this phrase, human self interest, in the eleventh hour. So, I understand where we were going with the bot government. Essentially, it's lack of regulation. It's lack of. Um, you know, uh, it's yeah, it's people it, over profit, people over it's, profit, essentially, or, or profit yeah. over people. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I wish it was people over profit. I guess it's more specific <laughs> to like our late stage. I mean, that's our mindset was, uh-huh. but it's a very a bot government is obviously very influenced by human self interest. So it kind of like they go, they can flip flop. I know. So what do we think about sending racism, sexism, and ableism? to the alarmist jail for capitalism. I mean, fightism with an ism? Well, do, <laughs> that's do you not, think that, that doesn't make sense? <laughs> I don't know. Do you think that the, you know, cuz she also mentioned capitalists um and and, and human nature. I think yeah. human human nature I think has to be to blame here. Um and what you can you can roll racism, sexism, ableism into human yeah. human nature um I, you know in, in in you know which is sad and ugly but might just be what we need to do in this case in, to, in order to really get to the root cause and the root problem of this um you know very broad and vast concept that sort of governs who we are what we mm. do i agree i i do feel like uh, I, I, I thought it was very interesting that she said at the very end that, you know, um, capitalism without the racism and the sexism would be a very different system. So, you know, like 
the capitalists are the owners, but if you if the capitalists aren't operating under with their own like bias biases, racism, sexism, et cetera, mm-hmm. how different they might be approaching what the best you know form of that system is. So I think that does okay. go back to so, like capital, like human nature. Like here, but but here's where I'm bumping. Uh, what I'm bumping on is human nature. I feel like is such a broad concept, and I I perhaps I just don't believe that human nature is 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 bad. You know, like sure, like that sure. just uh, it, uh, that I don't believe it's a given that it has to be bad. Well, we're not but, saying that it's bad necessarily. We're just saying that it is particularly to blame for the the creation of the system. Yeah. Well, well, here's what I'm thinking then. We throw into the alarmist jail sexist, racist, ableist, capitalist. Mm, okay. You're differentiating the good capitalists <laughs> from the bad capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I mean that just no, goes back to corru- yeah. it's a, like corruption. Corruption, and, yeah, or, yeah. I mean, I know what you're saying. I like, I, I get wanting to be super specific, and maybe so. Maybe, yeah. I think what's so scary about um, the exploitation of, say, people and labor and utilizing power over people is that I believe, e- you know, there are evil forms of it that can be totally indifferent to race or to sex or gender like yeah. that to me is what's scary about um capitalism at its worst um so that that's why i you know i feel like in this particular instance what we're talking about is is the broadest possible thing you know mm-hmm. what i mean it's really really uh hard to sort of and this is probably why this is so difficult but I think it's difficult too because to say human nature, you have to include yourself in that. You know, like it's we all want to kind of like oh, separate well, ourselves. Yeah. Like you know, I other people are doing, but like to really hold the mirror up to nature, you have to be like I'm also, and I I know I blame capitalism all the time, but I know I'm very much part of the system. So yeah. I'm not in any way trying to other myself and be like, no, I'm I, I'm living life the best way. You guys just aren't doing it right. Like I'm a part of it. So it's kind of scary to be like, yeah, like. I do have this in me mm-hmm. and we are fighting our inner demons all the time. How do we make decisions more like for the, you know, group or the whole It's just me. So maybe that's why it's like, and like to Chris's point, it's a broad topic and that can have a broad culprit to blame, <laughs> or we could just switch it to human self-interest we can keep that phrase that we gave the big slap to if that feels more pointed yeah okay okay why don't we do that human self-interest okay and then what are we slapping though we can slap capitalists or capitalists or racism sexism all the isms okay okay let's do that okay racism sexism ableism capitalism yes <laughs> you're getting the big slap <laughs> human nature but let's be specific human self-interest you're going to the alarmist jail i mean it's a huge topic it's difficult it's hard you gotta kind of have like a degree 
I can't believe how much Dr. Levy was able to cover in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. And I'm was- sure, yeah, like you said, we just scratched the surface. Oh, yeah. This, this is, is at least a semester long. I mean, we But it was fascinating. It yeah. does make and makes you want to get deeper into the uh into the concepts. Mhm. I have a feeling we will. Mhm. Well, stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing Mike Tyson's earbite. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.